0: Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy.
1: Thank you for joining us for Therapeutics Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Melanie Smith and I am the director of the ASHP section of ambulatory care practitioners. I will be your host for this week's ASHP's Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. With me today are Rebecca Anderson and Clarence Moore, both are assistant professors of pharmacy practice at Shenandoah University. Thank you for joining us today, Rebecca and Clarence. Thank you. Thank you. Let's get started by talking about today's topic, sickle cell disease, pharmacologic prevention, and management of vasoocclusive episodes. So the first question I will pose will be to Clarence, and that is, what are the different types of sickle cell disease, and how does it lead to some complications such as anemia?
0: So thank you for the question. Uh, there are actually several different variants of sickle cell disease found in the world, uh, with four more commonly seen in the United States, uh, one of those being hemoglobin S, beta-0 thalassemia, hemoglobin S, beta-plus thalassemia, hemoglobin SC, and the most common one that we see is hemoglobin SS. Uh, This sickle cell disease is a genetic disorder due to a mutation that occurs in the globulin beta chain resulting in a formation of hemoglobin S, which is a protein composed of two normal and two beta subtype mutant chains. We'll see what this is, it results in abnormally shaped hemoglobin, which is we, we know to be shown as the, the sickle cell that reduces the ability of that hemoglobin S to deliver oxygen and cause polymerization after that oxygen is delivered, which also results in cellular lysis of the red blood cell.
1: Okay. So thank you for that overview of just sickle cell disease in general. So the next step, as pharmacists, we're concerned about medication. So what are some medications that can be used to treat sickle cell disease and how do these agents work?
0: So there are several different medications that have been you know, utilized to maintain the sickle cell disease. Uh, however, one of the mainstays is hydroxyurea, which is a medication that we see utilized in oncology setting. Hydroxyurea is an oral chemotherapeutic agent that stimulates fetal hemoglobin production. Uh, and with that fetal hemoglobin production, it tends to decrease the red blood cells from sticking by uh, reducing that formulation of that hemoglobin s and also reducing the uh, red blood cell adhesion. Uh, this medication was approved, uh, and it was when it was showed, it was showed significant reduction in the frequency of painful episodes, the risk of acute chest syndrome, uh, need for blood uh, transfusions, as well as the risk for hospitalization. However, there were no significant differences in death, stroke, or hepatic sequestration, but upon follow-up the study, nine years, it did show... 40% reduction in mortality. In November of 2019, there was a medication that was approved, Oxilator. Um, and this was a, uh, an agent that had a different mechanism of action. Uh, what this agent was approved, it was approved in the individual's 12 years of age or older. And this also is an oral agent. But the way this works is it reversibly binds to hemoglobin and prevents that polymerization of the hemoglobin S, uh, keeping it in that oxygenated state. Uh, what we'll see is uh, when the clinical trial, the HOPE trial, it was conducted with 274 subjects uh, with at least one vasoclusive event in the, in the year prior, and it assessed the different doses, uh, which came to figure out that the 1,500 milligram dose was associated with significant higher hemoglobin response. However, long-term follow-up is still required. Uh, the last medication that I will definitely discuss is crizinolizumab. Um, And this medication was also approved in uh, 2019 for individuals 16 years of older. Uh, This medication, however, is an intravenous agent that binds to P-selectin, which is an adhesion molecule expressed on activated platelets and endothelial cells, and results in adhesion of uh, sickle erythrocytes, inhibiting interactions between erythrocytes, leukocytes, platelets, and endothelial cells. Which decreased that platelet ag- aggregation. What we looked at, and we uh, we looked at, we looked at 198 subjects with sickle cell disease who had at least two painful episodes each year. Uh, we looked at the different doses uh, this medication is given every four weeks. And uh, upon completion, we, it was discovered that five milligrams per kg was that high dose was associated with no pain episodes following that year of treatment.
1: That's a lot of information about the medications that can be used to treat sickle cell anemia. So when would these medications actually be utilized in practice?
0: So very, very good question, because the bigger thing that we see is medications like this are mainly used in the maintenance of therapy. Hydroxyurea, the clinical indication for hydroxyurea per the guidelines on the management of sickle cell disease would be uh, frequent painful episodes as defined as at least three sickle cell-related moderate to severe episodes within a 12-month period or sickle cell-associated pain that interferes with daily activities and quality of life. Severe symptomatic chronic anemia that interferes with daily activities and quality of life, a history of severe or recurrent ACS or other severe vaso-occlusive complications. Vexelator, like I said, is one of the newer agents. Uh, The indication for this is for individuals that have uh, multiple vaso-occlusive pain episodes despite the use of hydroxyurea or for those individuals that, you know, we've deemed it unable to uh, utilize hydroxyurea. Crizanolizumab uh, is indicated for those individuals with frequent or severe vasoocclusive pain crisis or episodes and can be used along with hydroxyurea and those who are non-adherent to that medication.
1: So with all medications, we are concerned about contraindications and drug interactions. So can you describe um, if there are any contraindications, drug interactions, or adverse effects associated with the medications used to treat sickle cell disease?
0: So kind of as mentioned previously, hydroxyurea is utilized in the the anti-cancer setting. So one of the most common adverse events that we see with that is bone, uh, bone marrow suppression, which also leads to neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, and anemia. Typically, you know, if these counts fall below a certain threshold, you know, the medication can be discontinued, usually temporarily for approximately two weeks until the the numbers stabilize, and then we could potentially start the individual back at a lower dose. Uh, There is some contraindication that has been mentioned in pregnancy, as there are some teratogenic properties that are seen with this medication. Uh, Given its risk of myelosuppression as well, you know, uh, the utilization or co-concomitant utilization of immunosuppression should be avoided. Along with other live vaccines as well. As far as the Voxelator, some of the common adverse event or effects that we're seeing with it are headache, fatigue, skin rash, fever, and just you know the 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 GI effects. So there are some drug drug interactions that this uh, medication has been mentioned. Uh, that CYP3A4 substrate. You know those individuals who are on. Uh, This medication should avoid, you know, the strong CYP3A4 inhibitors. Specifically, it mentioned uh, conivaptin and fucytic acid. Uh, For crizinolizumab, the common adverse effects are most commonly seen are fever, arthralgia, and nausea. Uh, There are no, you know, specific reported contraindications, however, in the manufacturing laboring, and no major drug interactions.
1: Okay, so that's good to know. So switching gears a little bit, I'm going to pose the next couple of questions to Rebecca. Can you please describe some of the common complications of sickle cell disease?
2: Sure. Um, So complications are usually divided into either being chronic complications or acute complications. So patients with chronic complications, these that could develop include pulmonary hypertension, osteonecrosis, which we see, cholelithiasis, as well as ocular issues, cardiovascular or renal issues, and most importantly, depression and anxiety in these patients. Acute complications that we see commonly in the hospital include acute chest syndrome, but the most common condition that we see is vaso pain episodes or pain crises. Other acute complications do include stroke, priapism, or splenic sequestration, but most commonly we see acute chest syndrome and very commonly vaso pain episodes.
1: So are there risk factors for these vaso pain episodes, and how are they managed within the hospital?
2: Sure. So these pain episodes, they can be unpredictable, but there are some known triggers or risk factors which could precipitate pain episodes, and these include infections, dehydration, hypoxia, temperature fluctuations, as well as iron overload, higher hemoglobin, patients who are older, as well as those with lower fetal hemoglobin. The mainstays for vasoclusive pain management involves hydration if the patient is dehydrated or volume depleted, because that can precipitate or exacerbate pain crises. And pain control, which is the cornerstone for the treatment of these episodes, it's important to also identify and treat any factors which have precipitated the pain episode if possible and counsel the patient on those factors. The choice of the pain regimen that we typically utilize in the hospital is really dependent on several factors. This includes what they take at home their previous pain pattern and history of response to prior pain regimens that have been used and have been successful, as well as any pertinent medical conditions that may necessitate the choice of one agent over another. There are two main guidelines which discuss vaso-occlusive pain management. The 2014 National Institute of Health Expert Panel Report, which incorporates recommendations from the American Pain Society's Guideline for the Management of Acute and Chronic Pain and Sickle Cell Disease, but most recently, the 2020 American Society of Hematology's Guideline on the Management of Acute and Chronic Pain and Sickle Cell Disease. This was recently published in June of 2020. Now, when you assess both guidelines, they recommend rapid assessment and administration of analgesia. Typically, we give a dose of hydromorphone, morphine, or fentanyl in the ED within 30 minutes of triage or 60 minutes of registration, That's those times are specified per the 2014 NIH report. But both documents recommend the use of a standardized protocol to treat the acute pain. Regarding perineral opioids uh, that we use for pain, both documents recommend the use of PCA or intermittent opioids. But the 2020 ASH guideline offers a deeper dive into the question as to whether basal or continuous opioid infusion should be utilized in conjunction with on demand opioid dosing or PCA dosing, or in conjunction with intermittent opioid dosing. Now, currently, most institutions probably utilize a basal IV opioid infusion in conjunction with demand dosing via PCA. The conclusion of the 2020 ASH guideline was that there was no direct evidence to support a recommendation for or against the use of, of that. Now, the 2014 report just says you can use. You know, around-the-clock dosing or intermittent dosing versus as needed. Um, so, other other adjunctive pain therapy modalities that they did discuss in these guidelines include insets and. That would be for those without any significant risk factors, which would prohibit the use of those agents, such as renal impairment or peptic ulcer disease or their own full dose anticoagulation, as well as some alternative treatment modalities, which would include massage, yoga, uh, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation or TENS, virtual reality, and guided audiovisual relaxation. And that's in addition to standard pharmacologic management. The 2020 ASH guideline also addresses the use of ketamine as an adjunctive treatment and patients with refractory pain or pain not effectively treated with the opioids alone, but that is a conditional recommendation based on a very low certainty um, on the evidence of of the effects. So, you know, I think the biggest thing is the need to engage patients in a discussion regarding the use of the basal in conjunction with the PCA dosing prior to initiating it, because that is what we use um, at most institutions. It's just, there's not a lot of data out there regarding it.
1: So, Rebecca, just for I'm going to veer off script a little bit for um, clarification of terminology, PCA, is that patient controlled analgesia?
2: Yes, it is.
1: <laughs> okay. Yes, yeah, patient
2: controlled analgesia or PCA.
1: Thank you. <laughs> just for those of us that haven't been to pharmacy school in quite some <laughs> time. Okay. <laughs> so, um, are there any studies or data regarding the use of intermittent versus PCA opioids for vaso-inclusive pain episodes?
2: Well, there have been a few studies. There have been studies that looked at PCA compared to intermittent dosing. And there has been a study looking at PCA versus continuous infusion, PCA being an on-demand dose, right? The, the older study that has that is actually cited in the guidelines was published in 1991 in the Archives of Internal Medicine by Gonzalez and colleagues. And they looked at intermittent intravenous opioid administration versus PCA and um, there were two phases to the study. Phase one had a lower dose for both groups, the intermittent and the patient-controlled analgesia, and phase two had a higher dose, and they found that the PCA groups had a significantly shorter time between the onset of pain and when their pain was controlled and treated compared to the intermittent group, and there was also a, recently in 2019, just a retrospective cohort study in the Journal of Pain and Palliative Care, and they also compared intermittent opioid dosing with PCA administration. However, they only found statistically significant differences in secondary outcomes and only the secondary outcomes of treatment failure, which was lower in the PCA group, and pain control, which the PCA group actually um, had ha- um, adequate initial opioid dosing versus the intermittent group. There was also a study conducted by Van Beers and colleagues on PCA versus continuous infusion, and this was in morphine during a vasoclusive pain episode. That was published in 2007 in the American Journal of Hematology. It was a randomized controlled trial, and this was conducted in the Netherlands. The authors found that there was a statistically significant lower mean and cumulative morphine consumption in the PCA group versus the continuous infusion group. Now, they looked at mean daily pain scores between the two, and they were found to be similar. Given the widespread use of basal opioid dosing in conjunction with the on-demand opioid dosing via PCA, which is what we use in the hospital usually, and really the lack of direct evidence to validate this type of administration, more research is warranted. And that's echoed by the 2020 ASH guideline that just came out. And most studies were conducted in post-operative patients. They were opioid naive. So we can't really generalize these results to sickle cell patients who come in with these vasoclusive pain episodes because many of these are opioid tolerant patients. They have chronic pain and typically may be on opioids, schedule opioids at home. So we really need more research to assess benefits and harms. And again, you know, if they do give it in the hospital, really uh, working with the patient And talking with the patient, discussing with the patient the benefits and risk of using the continuous infusion or basal along with um, a PCA or on-demand dosing.
1: Well, that's a lot of good information right there about the medications. All right, so I'm going to pose the last question to both of you, Clarence and Rebecca. Um, so we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Is there any guidance on the management of acute chest syndrome or the management of maintenance medications for sickle cell disease at this time? So Clarence, I'll start with you.
0: So as far as the, the maintenance of the medication, if a patient is being managed well, you know, there's no... There's no reason for them to change any of their sickle cell medications because of the pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic, or an actual infection. Uh, if, uh, you know, the the area that that individual is in, if there are, you know, elevated COVID-19 rates or they, uh, you know, the rates are rising in that area, you can consider potentially reducing the frequency of clinic visits, you know, pharmacy visits, you know, while considering or potentially telemedicine visits um, increase or, Potential to increase supply of medications. If you look at how some of those medications are dosed, if you look at hydroxyurea, hydroxyurea is a medication that's taken daily, so we can increase the amount of medication or the amount of hydroxyurea that is dispensed uh, with some sort of follow-up. You know that could be a, you know something else to kind of look at uh, compared to some of the other medications that may be given at a you know a q four week interval.
1: And Rebecca, do you have anything else to add?
2: Well, in regards to acute chest syndrome, it's a very serious complication. And, you know, in these patients with sickle cell disease who develop COVID-19, they have been shown to have a higher risk for poor prognosis. There's not a lot of reports um, out there. it's limited data, but there has been a registry that has actually where uh, physicians- will input um, patients who have sickle cell disease who have confirmed COVID. Um, the Medical College of Wisconsin established the secure SCD registry, and this is in globally. And they analyzed this, and they analyzed patients who had sickle cell disease with confirmed COVID-19 living in the United States that have been reported during March 20th to May 21st, 2020, and they found that among sickle cell disease patients with confirmed COVID 19, they had a 69% hospitalization rate, 11% ICU admission rate, and 7% mortality rate. So very, you know, poor prognosis. So we want to make sure that I would agree with Clarence and making sure telehealth visits, um, prevention is key. But if they do come in and they present with signs and symptoms of acute chest syndrome which would be cough shortness of breath infiltrates on chest x-ray these also correlate with symptoms of covid-19 as well so providers would need to do a SARS-CoV-2 test and 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 recommend that to be done, as well as testing for influenza or respiratory viruses, because we're coming into the influenza season, and then initiate empiric antibiotics to cover the most common pathogens that we typically see, which would be atypical uh, pathogens, streptococcus pneumoniae and hemophilius influenzae, and then blood transfusions if needed as well. But prevention is key, and outpatient management is crucial. Those telehealth visits are crucial, um, especially when it comes to optimizing their pain regimens to prevent them from coming in with these crises and educating them on social distance.
1: Well, that's all the time we have today. I would like to thank both Rebecca and Clarence for joining us to discuss sickle cell disease pharmacologic prevention and management of vaso episodes. And I would invite everyone to join us here every Thursday as we will be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official,
0: the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare.